Well, good morning, everybody. Man, I, uh, last service, first time I actually got to see that video, and uh, Megan, uh, the blonde who's running out in the snow, is on staff with us, and uh, Megan's a great girl, but I thought, I don't know if you ever tried to run in front of a video. Have you ever tried to run and no people are watching you? Like, you don't run normal, do you? You kind of get the, the Phoebe run. Yeah. <laughs> Only the Friends fa- fans know what I'm talking about. Anyway, anyway, Megan did a good job there. So it's kind of funny because, you know, here we are, we're all running, we're all pursuing something. And the question we all need to kind of start with is, what are we running to and what are we running from? Because that's really kind of the, the, the thing. As we launch this new year, there's two times in the year that most of us think about life. And it's January, the beginning, or right at the end of December, or it's at the beginning of the school year, if you have kids. You've got these two natural checkpoints, and there's a reason both of those checkpoints are a reminder that something is behind and something is ahead. So as we're starting 2017, and I'm here, I wasn't here last week, like probably some of you, What is it you're running to and what is it you're running from? I don't know if you saw the movie, but in 2011, (coughs) excuse me, (coughs) a movie came out with Justin Timberlake in it. And uh, some of you have no idea who that is. That's okay. And the movie was called, I believe it was called On Time. The whole concept of the movie was everybody is given 25 years of life. And at 25 years old, a little clock appears on everybody's kind of arm. And it's got this countdown going. And you're given 365 days from that point. So every day, it clicks down, clicks down, it clicks down, it clicks down. Now, there are ways that you can get more time. There are illegal ways. And there are actually time gangs or time bandits that run around. And they steal people's time from them and add it to their own clock. If you are really, really wealthy, you can buy more time. You can literally purchase time from other people and put it into your time, which means they are selling you their life. And so they're giving you some of their time, their life expectancy, but in return, they get to live really good for a couple years and then just die. They're going to die anyway. The movie is a fantastic portrayal of culture in general, how the rich get richer and the poor get more oppressed. And it's just fascinating to watch. But what is most fascinating to me is this idea of a ticking clock. True story, somebody actually went and created this product. It's literally called Ticker, T-I-K-K-E-R, and they have given me no money to promote their product. Ticker is a reverse watch. You buy the watch, it costs roughly around $60 to $100, depending on which one you get. They're trying to get this thing going. Apparently, it's not been wildly popular yet, but you put in the, your age, and it basically starts a clock backwards, predicted to the day you will die. Don't you wish you'd gotten this for Christmas? (laughs) What's fascinating is what it says on their website. So here's from Ticker's website. At Ticker, we believe in living life to its greatest potential. Time is finite, and every moment doing something that does not make you happy is a moment wasted. We have created a product that is aimed at those who really do want to take advantage of every second of their lives. We believe in challenging yourselves, taking risks, chasing dreams, and living life like there is no tomorrow. We do not advocate careless or irresponsible behavior. However, we also feel that sitting at a job you hate or not following your true passions are just as dangerous. So if you go to their frequently asked questions page, one of the questions is, how exactly do you determine how long I'm going to live? And basically what they say is, so we take the government census data which will say basically you're going to live between 75 and 80 years. It used to be women would live a couple years longer than men. Men were tended to live riskier lifestyles. So as an average, men tended to not live quite as long as women. I think it has to do with most of us men don't know what to do without the women in our lives, so we just give up first. Anyway, 
So between 75 and 80, then they basically subtract your life. That's pretty much it. Sounds like worth 100 bucks, right? You could probably get an app for this, by the way, for free. But basically, they say you can increase or decrease your time based off whether you smoke, drink, exercise, eat unhealthy, or have a highly stressful life. So under the frequently asked questions page, the very next question then is this. So if I can determine my own life expectancy, then why do I need a ticker watch? Which is a fantastic question. And their response, honestly, you don't need the watch. You can lead your life in any way you see fit. However, the watch is designed to be a constant reminder to live your life in the most positive way possible by seeing how fast time goes by. Use your time doing the things that influence your life in a positive way, and you may live longer with those years being productive, less stressful, and high-quality time with friends and family. Anybody who has kids knows time is ticking away, isn't it? It seems like just yesterday, uh, I was holding my boys while they fell asleep on my chest, and then watching them struggle to walk, and then watching them struggle to get on a little, uh, little mini bike where they use their legs. My youngest just turned three this week, and um, <laughs> literally went through three pairs of brand new shoes, and every time he went through them in less than 48 hours, because the only way he could ride his bike was to do this, and they would have holes in the tips. And I'm like, I am spending so much money on shoes the last 24 hours to where now my boys just learned this year how to ride without training wheels. And it's only a matter of time till they're driving. And it's only a matter of time till they have their first car accident. And it's only a matter of time until I find out whether or not they survive that car accident. Quite depressing. You should have slept in this morning. <laughs> but it's real, isn't it? It's real. I don't know if you know this, I didn't have time to put them all up there, but in 2016, uh, my best count says there were 44, 44 celebrity deaths, 44 celebrity deaths, just a few, and you may not know all of these depending on your generation, David Bowie, Alan Rickman, Glenn Fry, Abe Vigoda, George Gaines, Tony Burton, George Kennedy, Nancy Reagan, Robert Horton, Joe Santos, Joe Garagiola. Poor guy, I can't even say his name. Ken Howard, Peter Brown, Gary Shandling, James Noble, Patty Duke, Doris Roberts, Prince. I don't even know if I'm allowed to say his name. Whatever the symbol guy is. Muhammad Ali. Some of you don't get it. That's all right. Stephen Hill, Anton Yelkin, Gene Wilder, Hugh O'Brien, Robert Vaughn, Florence Henderson, Fidel Castro. See a celebrity? Zaza Gabor, Alan Thick, George Michael, Carrie Fisher, I guess Mike technically roll over to this year, I didn't look at the exact day. And I didn't even read all of them. 44, that's just celebrities. People you grew up watching in movies, on TV, people who spent millions upon millions of dollars doing everything they could to be young, to look young. But guess what? Death has a 100% success rate. Technically, that's not accurate. In the Bible, there are two men who immediately went to God and didn't have to die. So it has a 99.999999999 Success rate. And here's the thing. So I have some friends and some colleagues and people I know who do uh, financial planning and investing, especially estate planning, and they will tell you almost no one wants to have the conversation. 
They have men and women they work with who are extremely successful and wealthy in life, and they have done a phenomenal job with making money, even figuring out how they're going to spend their money, building budgets, building companies, doing everything right, but they will not sit down and plan their last day. Why? Because it's like a watch ticking backwards. Nobody wants to think about it. Nobody wants to talk about it. Nobody wants to deal with it. I don't know if you know this, by the way. But unless I misunderstood, because I'm not an expert in this, but if you don't plan where the money's going to go, the government gets half. So you can either let Uncle Sam have half of everything you've worked hard for, or you can sit down and figure out where to invest that money to continue to know that your life made a difference. Supporting perhaps a private Christian school or, or Bible college or some church near you, just some ideas, all right? So I'm saying this because... I want us to really pause and reflect for a moment. I have a friend who had a neighbor, and the wife of this neighbor believed in God, and the husband did not. And many years, he'd spent trying to talk to this man about God. And his response was, I just don't see the purpose. I just don't see a need. I just don't, I don't even sit around and think about it. There's going to come a day for everybody in here you're going to think about. And you may start with a question more like this. Did I do with my life what I wish I had done? That's a natural question for all of us. In fact, some of you have heard of Steve Jobs. In case you don't know, Steve Jobs, the founder of a company called Macintosh. Most of us know it today as Apple. And uh, he also was a huge, I don't remember if he was the founder or one of the major creators of a little company called Pixar, which made all these amazing Disney movies make us cry, thinking about how life is passing by and our toys talk and scare us and all these crazy things. But... Steve Jobs was an amazingly gifted, creative man. We could all agree on that. There's lots of stuff out there about whether or not he was a nice man or a good man. I have no idea. I've never met the guy. Steve Jobs, though, was asked to speak in front of a bunch of college students, and he had this phenomenal little quote because Steve Jobs had been diagnosed with cancer, and here's what he said. It was part of the quote. I, I just grabbed some parts of it. Here's what it says. Remembering that I'll be dead soon is the most important tool I've ever encountered to help me make the big choices in life. Almost everything, all external expectations, all pride, all fear of embarrassment or failure, these things just fall away in the face of death, leaving only what is truly important. Remembering that you are going to die is the best way I know to avoid the trap of thinking you have something to lose. You are already naked. There is no reason not to follow your heart. No one wants to die. Even people who want to go to heaven don't want to die to get there. And yet, death is the destination we all share. No one has ever escaped it, and that is how it should be, because death is very likely the single best invention of life. It's life's change agent. It clears out the old to make way for the new. So as we're launching into 2017 and you were to look back on 2016 and forward into 2017, I want you to ask yourself these very two simple questions. Ready? Question number one. Question number one. What is it that you need to start doing in 2017 to become more of the person you want to be? What is it you need to start doing to become more of the person you want to be in 2017? Now, as your mind races, and already I'm asking that, some of you have already asked that. You made commitments to yourself a couple weeks ago. You're already failing. It might be time to get back to it, at least if you're like me. It was my son's birthday, okay? A little cake didn't hurt anybody. And I drove past Long's Donuts. It wasn't my fault. But anyway, true story yesterday. Anyway, 
as you're looking at 2017, to really ask this question and to be honest with yourself. You're not starting 10 new things. You're not starting eight. You're not starting seven. You're not starting five. At best, you might start three and more realistically, one or two. What is one or two things you need to do in 2017 to become more the person you want to be? Now, I'm going to flesh that out more as we go. So just hang on to that question. Stick it aside. But you cannot get there without the second question. See, most of us, because we've watched movies like Dead Poets Society, right? We've tried to carpe diem. We've tried to suck the marrow out of life. So therefore, we just can't sit around and relax and watch a movie. Because we might be missing something. And we go on Facebook and social media and we can see what everybody else is doing everywhere else and all of the world all in one moment. So we feel constantly like we're not experiencing something. And so this whole idea of sucking the marrow out of life stresses us out. It makes us get very little sleep and keep going. We gotta keep exercising. We gotta keep eating healthy. We gotta keep spending. We gotta keep buying. We gotta keep going. Go, go, go. Because we're so afraid to miss out. So if you're gonna start something new, 2017, I encourage you to go buy a stop bucket or a to don't bucket, which is terrible English, but sounds fantastic. <laughs> I'm going to do these things. I'm going to not do these things. And for every time you begin something new, I want you to put something else in the other bucket. What are you going to start and what are you going to stop? Now, let's dig into those a little bit. Let's try to flesh those out and get some wisdom on those for a minute. Psalm chapter 90, a guy named Moses wrote a psalm. And when he wrote this psalm, uh, the whole thing is fantastic. I've actually got it here. I debated reading it, but I just don't have enough time. I encourage you to read Psalm 90 sometime. Because basically, it's broken into three major parts. Part one is a celebration of God, of his character, of who he is. But then also in part one, Moses recognizes that God is full of wrath and anger. And if you don't know the whole story of the Bible, you need to let me tell the rest of this message before you get hung up only on that. But it's a message where Moses is going, we realize life is short, it's brief. In fact, he says the average life is 70 or 80 years at most. This is in Psalm 90. It's true still today. I mean, I can't tell you exactly how long ago Moses was, but it was probably 1,500 years or so, or more, 2,000 possibly, or more, and yet life is about the same. Now, according to the biblical timeline, I realize you may not agree with me on that. Maybe you're still checking out this thing called God or wrestling through uh, the idea of creation versus evolution. I get it, okay? So don't get hung up on what I'm about to say, but according to the biblical timeline, I just want you to understand this. According to the Bible, I can't find any place where death was a part of the original creation. And what that means is when God created, the first time we ever even hear of death occurring is after Adam and Eve sinned. God goes and kills an animal and covers them with the clothing of the animal. And even that is a picture that points us to Jesus later on, the lamb that would be slain to remove the sins of the world, to cover or atone for the sins of the world. So that's right there in Genesis, which at least leads you to believe since there was a tree in the garden who produced fruit, the same tree that pops up later in the book of Revelation, the beginning and in the end, and this fruit is going to lead to the healing of the nations that at least possibly in the original creation before sin occurred, maybe this fruit somehow prolonged life forever and there never was an intention of anyone to die. I don't know. I don't know. The Bible doesn't really say specifically. But I do know this. 
Sin changed everything. Because if you read Genesis, people lived for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. And by the time we get from Genesis 3 to Genesis 6, which is a span of a long time in actual history, but a span of a short time in the text itself, we find God is so angry at sin on the earth that he wipes off almost all of mankind, wipes away almost all animals with a flood. And it was not like the terrible movie that came out a couple years ago. God was punishing sin, and what was happening is because there was so many years, the human heart began to go away from God. See, again, if you're visiting with us, and this may be the last time we see you, and I'll be sad. Truly, I will be sad, because there was so much wisdom in this book, the Bible, for us to still learn together. So if you could push through today, if I'm frustrating you, you just can't wait to walk out, just push through today and come back next week. There's more to learn. But just understand this. When we were created, creation was created, the earth, the universe, the trees, the plants, the animals, and especially men and women, we were all created to give glory to God. But what happened over 100 years of a sinful heart, we began to pursue other things. And so God came along and said, that's it, I'm shortening the lifespan span of men and women. And it was shortened down to roughly 80 years. It went to around 100, 120, and then down from there. In fact, we're actually up a little from a few hundred years ago because of modern medicine and things like that. We've raised it from, say, 50 or 60 or so on up. This is why if you read in history, you often find people today who accomplish great things in their 50s and 60s back in the day used to do it in their 30s and even in their 40s. Because you've got a little more time. And so we prolonged maturity, we prolonged adulthood, and we've even prolonged childhood. And that's a whole other conversation for another day. But this is all relevant to what we see then when we get to Moses' Psalm in Psalm 90. Because Moses is saying, God, I realize your anger and your wrath are carried out on us. Therefore, life is brief. But understand this. Psalm 90, verse 10. 70 years are given to us, some even live to 80. But even the best years are filled with pain and trouble. Soon they disappear and we fly away. Oh, glory. Who can comprehend the power of your anger? Your wrath is as awesome as the fear you deserve. Teach us to realize the brevity of life so that we may grow in wisdom. See, this is huge. Moses and Steve Jobs basically just said the same thing with one significant difference. Moses just said life is short, 70, maybe 80 years if you're lucky. Who could comprehend the power of the anger of God that's limited life? Now, what Moses said next is, so therefore, God help us. We don't want to waste a moment. We don't want to lose anything. We want to drink in all the life has for us. So teach us to realize its brevity so that we may grow in wisdom. Here's what Steve Jobs said when he closed out his little uh, commencement message to the college students. Here's the rest of his quote. Your time is limited, so don't waste it living someone else's life. Don't be trapped by dogma, which is living with the results of other people's thinking. Don't let the noise of others' opinions drown out your own inner voice. And most important, have the courage to follow your heart and intuition. They somehow already know what you truly want to become. Everything else is secondary. 
Now, maybe if you're not familiar with biblical terms, you hear that and you go, yeah, I'm going to go suck every moment out of life. You don't understand how wrong Steve Jobs is. And I mean no disrespect to the dead. But when Steve Jobs says, follow your own heart, the Bible says your own heart, your own heart is deceitful above all else. Your heart, not your spouse's, not your kids, not your parents or your neighbor, that guy at work you can't stand. Your own heart is deceitful above all else. So go ahead, follow it. That's not what the Bible says. It says it's deceitful. Who can trust it? What does that mean? That means if you follow your own heart, you will be no different than the men and the women in the early days of Genesis who over time stopped pursuing God and started pursuing self. The reality is all of us have a last day coming. And no one knows whether that last day is months or weeks or hours or years. I'm always terrified to preach a sermon because I'm like, what if God wants to make me the sermon illustration and it's me on the way home today? Like, seriously. My dream has always been I'll be doing a baptism for somebody and like at the same moment, like Jesus will return and just whoop right up out of the water. But none of us know. Buy all the tickers you want. Make all the money you want to buy the best health care. Anybody have more money to buy better health care than Steve Jobs? It's coming. And rather than feel overwhelmed by the fact that it's coming, rather than spend all of your life behind a camera or a video camera or a phone trying to capture every moment so you don't lose it, what if you were just to know, I am who I'm supposed to be? See, if that were the question you you knew the answer to, if that were the thing you were chasing, then when we would ask these questions, what do I need to start doing in 2017? And what do I need to stop doing in 2017? You would add something on to the end of those statements. It would have to do with this here. God, help us to realize life is short so that we might grow in wisdom. Why? Moses, how can this be your advice then? In light of the fact that life is short, that this is his goal. Because in biblical terms, to be wise is to be godly. It's to pursue God. When Moses says life is short, James backs us up. And I believe also in the Psalms and I believe it's Ecclesiastes, we are told over and over again that life is like a mist. You ever take something like a mist, even a hairspray, anything that shoots out, you just, and it shoots out in the air and you can see it at first and then it's gone. And the Bible reminds us over and over and over again, this is how life is. Now, here's the terrifying and glorifying thing at the same time. On the other side of that last breath, that last tick of the heartbeat, the last brainwave that goes on is a judgment day. And I mean no fear for anybody in here, but I do mean a little bit of realization because believer, it's for you as well. There is a day of reckoning for all of us. So while I was off uh, on Christmas break, uh, I decided to listen to a couple messages from my own heart, but they ended up feeding into this. I listened to two different podcasts, two of them by Catholic teachers, priests, who grew up as sons of pastors in Protestant churches. If, you don't, if you're not from the church world, you may have no idea what I'm saying right now. That's all right. That's all right. Just stick with me. And then also a couple Protestant preachers who were teaching on the same subject. Now, I disagreed with the vast majority of what my Catholic brothers said. Do I believe they'll be in heaven? I mean, I'm not God, but I think so. Yeah, I mean, I think so. But I totally disagreed with them because they said that basically we will be in heaven because of all of the good things that we do. And I don't believe that. I don't think the Bible teaches that. However, I do think they nailed this. They said most Protestants will tell you 
that because we are saved by grace through faith, that therefore in the last day there won't be an accounting. But there will be. I mean, Jesus talks about this over and over and over. So does Paul. So does Peter. You guys realize there is still a judgment day to come. Now, I'm in the process of studying this, so I don't feel like I have a lot of wisdom to add beyond what I'm about to say at this time because I don't want to speak wrongly about God. However, I will say this. Yes, you may still get into heaven, but you may get in with sorrow. Go read 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and 4 sometime, and Paul talks about this very concept. You may be one who gets in as though passing through the flames, but have great sorrow. Why? Because you look back over 2016 and 15 and 14 and 13 and so on and go, I did not live my life for the right things. So yeah, you may pass through, but instead of hearing your father say, well done. I mean, think about it. Matthew 25 Jesus says that at the last day that we'll be separated to the sheep and the goats. How do we know which side we're going to be on? Well, it'll be based off what we do. Are we saved by works? No. But what we do is a revelation of who we are. Jesus says, I believe it's in Matthew 12, I had this big discussion with my wife over Christmas break. Not that my wife and I ever debate Bible things. But uh, Jesus says we will literally give an account for every careless word spoken. Ouch. Believer and unbeliever, understand this. That last day could be full of great sorrow or it could be full of great joy. But the way it becomes full of great joy is to realize that no one knows their last day. Ticker can't even tell you. And then to say, God, what do I do with my life? What do I do in 2016? What do I need to add to my life? Here's the second part of the question. To become more like Christ. See, if Jesus is the prototype of the perfect human, and he was, Hebrews tells us he walked in the flesh, he had every temptation we had, but yet never sinned. This is why Jesus could be the perfect sacrifice for us, because he never did the things that we do. So when I look at Jesus, I can always figure out what I'm supposed to do based off what he did. And so I study his life, and I soak in the meaning of that and say, what do I need to do in light of what he did or light of what he said? And then secondly, what do I need to stop doing to become more like Christ? And that one's harder. But again, Hebrews tells us that we need to throw off the sin and the weight of the things that so easily entangle us. My sons, I don't know why, they love Christmas ribbon, the string stuff. And they like to take it like a whole brand new one. And before my wife and I can catch them, they are running around the house making house-wide spider webs. And if you're not careful, you will be dying in your own home on Christmas. Literally trying to maneuver, you're like trying to do laundry or whatever, and you're like, boys, and then they get, you know, you got this battle with your kids because you're trying to cut the line, like, nah, and they, they got to redo it while you go back upstairs to get more laundry. It's crazy. But it, when it finally comes undone, you know, it pulls the doorknob off or the handle off or whatever it is, you find yourself completely wrapped up in this thing, and then you're ready to wrap them up in it, and anyway, ship them off somewhere. Okay, but this is how Hebrews picture sin in our lives. We are so easily trapped up wrapped up in it. We don't always see it coming, but if we go down that path, next thing you know, we are deep in it. Remember, I originally asked you, what are you running from and what are you running to? So you may actually be in this room and running from God and running to sin, not realizing that the thing you are trying to get to save you can only lead to greater slavery. 
And God is saying, stop, turn around, run towards me, and let me set you free. So what do you need to do in 2017 to become more like Christ? And what do you need to do, what do you need to stop in 2017 to become more like Christ? James in chapter 4 says it this way. Look here, you who say today or tomorrow we are going to a certain town and will stay there a year. We will do business there and make a profit. How do you know what your life will be like tomorrow? Your life is like the morning fog. It's here a little while, then it's gone. But you ought to say is this. If the Lord wants us to, we will live and do this or that. Otherwise, you're boasting about your own pretentious plans, and all such boasting is evil. Now stop there for a minute. Let me help put this in context. So we're going to take a little sidetrack, and some people at Kingsway hate when I do this, all right? So we're on this path. We're headed towards a destination. Whoop, hey, look, there's a trail. We're going to come over here, and you're going to find the trail leads all the way back to the path. You're going to go, oh, all right? Stick with me. If you don't read your Bible the right way, you could come to wrong conclusions. Now, the Holy Spirit can do anything. You could be in a quiet time reading your Bible. You have no idea what you're talking, what's going on there, but then God grabs a verse or a paragraph or a sentence or a story, and you go, wow, that was for me, and you feel convicted. You listen to God, okay? But the best way, the most accurate way to read your Bible is to ask, who is this author? Who are they writing to, and what are they trying to tell them? And then to back out of that and say, okay, now what is the wisdom in that for me? I've been reading through Ephesians on my own because I want to teach on Ephesians to you sometime soon. And this is chapter, I think it's chapter three. Three times, three times in chapter three, Paul says something to the effect of carefully determine what pleases the Lord. And then he goes on and he says, now be careful to do what is right in the eyes of the Lord. And he says it again. He says it three times, and after each list, he says, here's some things you need to start doing. Here's some things you need to stop doing. And then here's some things you need to start and stop doing. Why? Because it takes processing. It takes meditation. It takes pursuit. It takes hard work. You don't just show up for an hour a week on a Sunday 20 times a year and go, I'm who I need to be. It takes careful determination to determine who God is and what he wants from you in this life. Now, when you get to James, if you don't understand the context to who James is talking to, then this kind of verse is so anti-American, and it is. This book, more than maybe any book in the New Testament besides the Gospels, is written to the American church. See, James is writing to a group of people who have recently become believers, and they're part of what we call the diaspora. They've been scattered abroad because of the persecution on Christians is so great. But as they're scattered abroad, they're no longer close in proximity to the apostles and the early church leaders. Because of that, they're kind of out on their own, and they're starting to flounder just a little bit. In some cases, a lot. So James write this book, writes this book to a specific church, knowing that it's going to get shared with other churches. But what's going on in that church is they've stopped caring about the poor. They've stopped uh, uh, loving the poor and treating them with the same honor and dignity that they would a rich person. So when they gather in the same place for worship, the rich people get the nice seats and the poor people get the bad seats. Not only that, but they're letting their tongues run wild. They are literally gossiping and slandering and attacking each other, tearing each other apart. And James says, it's a terrible evil, this thing called the tongue. It's like a small udder that controls a huge ship. It's like a bit in a horse's mouth. It's like a tiny spark that sets an entire Gatlinburg, Tennessee on fire. And your tongue will destroy you if you're not careful. Anybody who could control their tongue could control their whole body. And then he says some radical things like this. 
You ought to grieve, mourn, wail, turn your happiness and your joy into sorrow. And you're like, James, dude, you need some like Prozac or something. See, what James is trying to do is he's trying to get a puffed up, arrogant church who no longer considers God most important to realize that they are in a dangerous place. And rather than press on with life as is, with all these grandiose plans about all the great things they're going to do, they ought to grieve over their sin. They ought to be broken and sorrowful over what they've done. And then to realize, as he closes in the last chapter, if they will humble themselves under the mighty hand of God, he will lift them. But it gives us fantastic warning in verse 17. Remember, it is sin to know what you ought to do and then not do it. Do you know what you need to do? What do you need to start doing to become more like Christ? What do you need to stop doing to become more like Christ? It's a sin to know it and not do it. Do you know what it is? There's no way that I can know for every single one of you what it is. I can't. But I can give you some wisdom on how to discover it. So I have something I've put together, and I'm calling it the Pursuit of God Challenge. You ready? The Pursuit of God Challenge. You can find this in the app if you uh, download it in your app store. You can do it later this week. This will be in the notes. I'll make sure that we push this out later this week. You just go ahead and put it up. I'll just put it all up at once. Some of you who can't stand not reading ahead, that's fine. But here it is. To discover what God wants for you in 2017, I'm asking you to set aside a time to fast over the next week. Now, a fast means you're going to drink water only, no food. I realize some of you have major medical issues. I would always ask you to consider doing it anyway, even if for a short period of time, four hours, eight hours, 12 hours. If you absolutely cannot, then that's fine. But it's not about the, the, that so much. It's about trying to really focus on the Lord. A typical fast in biblical times would be sundown to sundown. So put some thought into this. Pick a day. Whatever it is, let's say I'm going to skip breakfast, I'm going to skip lunch, I'm going to skip the whole days of food, I'm going to do water only. That means no coffee or tea as well. You're like, didn't you want me to meet with Jesus? Yeah, do it early and it won't affect you as much, all right? Water only, because basically what you're doing is you're saying, God, I believe you are more important than my flesh. In that time, you're going to plan roughly 60 minutes. You're like, 60 minutes? I can't even find 60 minutes of me time. I know, I know. But if you'll shut down Facebook for 24 hours, turn off your TV, turn off your cell phone, talk to your spouse, your family members, your loved ones, your roommates, say, I need 60 minutes. If you give up one hour of sleep, I promise you, you won't regret it. It's one hour. By the way, if you've got a diagnosis of cancer, as my mom has done twice in the last seven years, it's amazing how much time you can find to do the things you think are important when you know that death is at the door. Put one hour aside, and I want you just to open a Bible. If you don't have one, you could grab the one that's here for you. Just take it with you. Go to Matthew chapter 5 and 6. You're going to read two chapters. It'll take you roughly 15 minutes. If you already have a quiet time, replace that or add this to it. Make this separate from that, okay? And at Matthew 5 and 6, you're just going to do these three things. 
You're going to pray to God. Number one, you're going to start with just celebration. So I usually pray first, like, God, I just pray you teach me from your word today. Just open my eyes, my heart to what it is you want to say to me and give me the humility, the strength to receive it. Then you're going to read Matthew 5 and 6. You may even pull out a journal. You're like, a what? I know. It's just a piece of paper. I don't care. My encouragement is it can't be your iPad or your cell phone. The reason is because if you're like me, it's too much of a distraction. There's too much temptation to go, oh, I want to post this on Facebook. Like, no, this is about being with Jesus, not about telling everybody else you're being with Jesus, okay? And in that moment, as you read Matthew 5 and 6, you're just going to say, God, I want to celebrate all the things that you have done in my life recently. You're perhaps over the last year. Now, maybe you're sitting here, you're, you're, you're visiting with us today. You're like, I don't know that God's done anything. I promise you he has. I promise you he has. Because the Bible tells me he has. Now, maybe you haven't been trained to look for it. But if that's the case, so just look back over the last three or four months and say, okay, God, then help me to see all the ways that you've been at work. And I just want you to look for all the ironies that popped up. And maybe just for a second, assume that all those ironies weren't ironic. Maybe God was in the midst of your life doing something. Sending a gift card at just the right moment, sending an email of encouragement from someone you didn't expect, uh, having a blessing come out of nowhere, even in the worst terrible circumstances when all you could see is death and pain and suffering, all of a sudden a little tiny glimmer of light comes in. Instead of going, wow, that was ironic, go, wow, thank you God for providing for me even in the midst of that. And if you have two, if you have 10, this may take you 30, 40 minutes alone depending on where you are in your walk with God. Then I want you to just do this. Say, okay, God, I want you to help me. This year in 2017, to serve Christ and connect with others in the body of Christ. Now, if you're visiting with us and you have not sold your you know, life out to God, said, okay, I need you in my life, you, this may not apply to you. You may be like, I don't really care. That's fine. You may be at step A, still encourage you to do this time. But for the rest of us, realize this. What you're going to find when you read Matthew 5 is it's going to start with Jesus telling you how to be happy. It's going to use the word blessed, but many commentators will tell you exchange blessed for happy. Because what, what Jesus is going to say is, happy are those who, and then he's going to go through and are righteous and seek God and, and take care of the poor and do all these other things. He's going to give you a list of do's. And he's also in Matthew 5 or 6 going to give you a list of don'ts. But in there, you're going to find these verses, Matthew chapter 5, or sorry, Matthew chapter 6, verses 33 and 34. Jesus says this, seek the kingdom of God above all else and live righteously and he will give you everything you need. Then he goes on, he says, so don't worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will bring its own worries. Today's trouble is enough for today. And anybody in the room who's paying attention ought to say, amen. Because I'm stressed thinking about next year and six months from now, I got to get this done and work done on my kids and I got to get my car fixed and I got to pay off these bills and I got to plan this thing. And I feel so overwhelmed. And Jesus is going, don't worry about all those things. I will take care of them if you do what? Seek my kingdom first. So come back now to this challenge so in that quiet time, you're just going to say, okay, God, your kingdom is more important than everything else. Well, the kingdom of God is the church on earth. One day it'll literally be the church eternal on earth. All of the church, the big C, every believer. Now, I know this may be hard for you to understand if you're visiting with us today, but there will not be unbelievers in the eternal kingdom. While we are here together now, there will only be believers. And that sounds extremely exclusive. It is. It's free to anybody who wants to be a part of it, but it's for everybody who wants to be a part of God. But what he's building in this thing called church is his body on earth. If your life as a believer is disconnected from the body of Christ, <clears throat> I would challenge you whether or not you really love God. And you're like, who do you think you are? I'm nobody. I am nobody. 
But if you read your Bible and come to a different conclusion, I think you might be reading a different Bible than the one I'm reading. The church, guys, is plan A. There is no plan B for the world. And anybody who believes I could come 15 or 20 times a year for an hour on Sunday or sit home and watch it on a screen doesn't understand what Jesus was building. And I don't want that for you. Read Matthew 5 and 6. You could see all these things for yourself. Because then the last thing I want you to pray is, God, give me your heart of compassion for those who are far from you. Jesus is going to offend this. Not a, if I just offended you, 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 you got to read Matthew 5 and 6. Because Jesus is just about to offend you to the core. And there he's going to tell you this. Love your enemies. Pray for them. And do good to them. Everybody finds a way to bless their family and their friends. I'm telling you, become like your heavenly father by not just being kind to your family and friends, but being kind and generous and loving to your enemies. He actually goes so far as to say, lend them money and not expecting anything in return. What? But they might do all these evil and destructive things. It doesn't matter. Your father did this for you long before you ever showed him gratitude. You want to be like Jesus in 2017? Just read Matthew 5 and 6. Take note of what one or two things you're supposed to start doing and what one or two things you're supposed to stop doing, and then you're going to begin to practice it. I want to close with this little verse. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 11 and 12. And what I want to do is uh, <clears throat> I want to pray these verses over you. So I'm going to read them to you. And then as soon as I read them, we're all just going to close our eyes. I'm going to go ahead and ask that um, our communion servers go ahead and go out now, like right now. This would be a good time if you've been offended to leave. I'm just kidding. No, I'm a communion server. Can't lie in church, man. God sees. All right. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 11 to 12, I'm going to read this, and then I'm going to pray it over you. And then our communion servers are going to bring you communion, and this is a great chance to invite God to speak to you this week as you pursue him. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 11. Paul says, So we keep on praying for you, asking our God to enable you to live a life worthy of his call. May God give you the power to accomplish all the good things your faith prompts you to do. Then the name of our Lord Jesus will be honored because of the way you live, and you will be honored along with him. This is all made possible because of the grace of our God and Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you because of the grace of Jesus. We can now walk right into your throne room and have this conversation right here. Thank you, God, that because of the grace of Jesus, the gift of death brings us to the place of wrestling with our eternity. It causes us to evaluate our lives and to ask hard questions, knowing that all of it is wrapped in the mercy of the cross. So, Father, as the one praying on behalf of all of us here in this room today, would you meet us right here, right now? God, would you speak encouraging words to us? 
building up where the enemy has tore down. But God, would you also speak truthful words to us, challenging us, getting in our face, Father, calling us away from a worthless, futile life, a meaningless life of chasing after the wind. And instead, Father, give us a passion for you and for your kingdom. May 2017 be the best year we've ever had because today we decided to pursue you with great passion and great energy. Give us the strength we need today and bless the work of our hands. In Jesus' name, amen.